dangerously close. Welcome to my Views of My podcast. Today we have a lecturer of political science from the University of Michigan, author of The Political Right and Equality, and co-host of Edgelord Podcast. That's right. Matt McManus is back on the podcast. Uh, Matt, before we get started, I want to let you know something interesting. Uh, I didn't go through like every single episode that came out in 2023, but I am fairly certain you had the most downloaded and shared and listened to episode of the whole year. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's crazy, man. Honestly, I had no idea that so many people were fucking interested in uh, postmodernism and Philip K. Dick, but there you go. Shows what I know, right? Well, that was actually, and here's the thing about that one. Like, so I was just reading your article. Uh, uh, you'd written an article called The Enduring Relevance of Philip K. Dick. And I was like, this is fascinating. And I, I reached out to you like on Twitter back when it was still Twitter. And uh, yeah. I was like, hey, man, would you be down to talk about this? And I was like, I was, you know, sometimes when I do an episode, I'm like, okay, I'll do this because I think a lot of people will like this. And sometimes I do an episode because I'm like, I will like this. And this is this is something that I'm purely interested in for me. And that was the thing about it, man, is like when I was reaching out to you, I was like, there's probably like not a huge number of my listeners that are going to be or, you know, they're going to want to share this with a lot of people, too, because it, it was kind of dense, you know, a little bit intellectual. And yeah, that thing went just blew up. I was like within a, a week of coming out, I was like, damn, this has been downloaded more than anything that had come out in the months prior so anyway man i just wanted to want to blow some smoke on you a little bit <laughs> to tell you how fucking uh how well received you were last time and i'm so glad to have you back on the podcast well man that's nice to hear right honestly like i've given up trying to fucking figure out what people are going to want to listen to uh you know i just <laughs> do my best and i'm like this is kind of interesting and kind of neat uh but you know in the end i thought we had a great conversation and we covered a lot of ground uh and Philip K. Dick and, you know, postmodernism and all the shit that we talked about are obviously, you know, really, really intrinsically interesting things. So it's great that so many people connected with it. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So, yeah, when you reached out to me about your latest book. Uh, sorry, let me just go ahead and read it. The, the full title, The Political Right and Equality, Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity. That is a mouthful. Uh, yeah. I was. Yeah, I was absolutely 100 percent on board. Like I was like, yo, let's do this again. Let's get Matt McManus back on the podcast. We got a lot of ground to cover, and you know, not nearly as much time as I would like. So, just man, let's just like, let's start simple. Uh, what does it mean to be on the political right? Well, what I argue in the book is that uh, a very well-known economist called F. A. Hayek uh, was right in his assessment of what the right is about. You know, to point a bad pun, uh, where. Hayek says, you know, if you're a conservative, you're on the right, then you're fundamentally committed to this belief that in any given society, uh, there are recognizably or demonstrably superior people, right? Uh, and, yeah, the proxy of that is that there are also way more recognizably inferior people uh, in society. Uh, and this abets a kind of hierarchical mindset where you think, look, some people are entitled to more status, more wealth, more political power, uh, more of all the good things in life because they are superior in certain kinds of ways. Uh, and, you know, everyone else not that they should suffer unduly, right? But they're just not entitled to the same kinds of things. Uh, so this is the kind of outlook uh, that I say characterizes conservatism uh, or the right. Uh, or to put it another way, uh, James James Stevens, who wrote a very famous critique of a philosopher called J John Stuart Mill, uh, once said, you know, 
the essence of a good society is recognizing that to obey a real superior uh, is a great virtue, right? With the question being, you know, what is a real superior? Uh, but everyone on the political right believes that there are real superiors out there, and most people should defer to them. That's yeah, that's a great definition. I think you uh, in the book you uh, kind of make a reference saying that 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 which unifies the right is the belief that there are inferior people who are undeserving of equality. Like that's the glue, because I guess I mean when you say the political right, you are talking about many different factions oh, yeah. and groups and they're not all the same and you know if the world was slightly different they would be at war with each other and i mean god i mean hopefully i mean it, it appears that way that even right now they are a bit at war with each other you know <laughs> one could only hope that that will escalate um and your book so here's a let's i'm gonna this is the part of the podcast where i'm gonna start to really demonstrate some of my ignorance but you know what that's i'm here to learn man that's <laughs> that's the point right okay so was i man honestly um back in 2016 when i started researching the shit i knew very little uh about the political right or conservatism you know i've been at it for almost a decade now so i'd say i've brushed up on it pretty well right but it's one of those uh topics where everybody thinks you know or you kind of have some familiarity with it uh but if you're not actually in those circles uh, it can seem a little bit opaque if you actually think like well how would I define this you know what are its main parameters and stuff so part of what my book is intending to do is give people who maybe don't know too much about it, a primer uh, on what these people are about. Yeah. And and I think what I was about to get into is uh, some of the historical references. And that's actually where some of the names I don't recognize, uh, you know, they're not immediately familiar. Because, um, you know, uh, I think for most people, like someone like myself, like I, you know, I am absolutely consider myself anti-fascist, but I would like to be more knowledgeable about what I'm saying. So, but I, but when I think of like uh, the extreme, you know, right wing extremism, you uh, first you think of Hitler. Everyone first thinks of Hitler, you know, mm -hmm. yelling and screaming and being a monster. And then you know, in modern times, you know, you think of like Donald Trump being like, you know, they they're sending you know the Mexicans across the border, and it's just like, and it's weird because he's so clownish, you know, and so it's easy to dismiss them as you know this kind of like clown led group of people but anyway as the, the book does goes back in time and it's uh you do like an intellectual history of the conservative conservative and reactionary tradition and it's and you go back to aristotle uh mm -hmm. my question is how was aristotle considered a right-wing figure uh, well, there's two things I want to say. First off, you know, um, it's very easy to sit there now in hindsight and say, you know, Hitler was this horrible monster. Uh, and, you know, we need to take what he did very seriously. And I want to make it clear, we do need to take what he did very seriously because he was a horrible monster. But you flash back to the 1920s, a lot of people also thought he was a fucking joke in Germany, right? Uh, not just, you know, randoms, but, you know, very intelligent, very well-connected people. Uh, they figured nothing is going to come from this, right? And um, that's because there are a lot of things that, about fascism that are inherently very funny sometimes self-consciously so right um, yeah. but just because something is funny or ridiculous doesn't mean it can't be threatening uh, or genocidal as we saw in the case of the nazi movement right uh, but the reason i went back to aristotle as the kind of first person in my book uh well there are two reasons right one aristotle is just a really important thinker right uh there's no doubt about it uh some of your readers might know dante you know for dante's inferno right uh so in dante's inferno um he actually throws a lot of good people into hell uh, the virtuous pagans, uh, as he calls them. These are people, you know, who wrote and thought before Christ was born. So 
kind of bad luck if you were <laughs> born before, uh, you know, the common era. Uh, but Aristotle is there in limbo. Uh, and Dante calls him the master of those who know, right? Pretty, pretty high praise, right? Uh, especially for somebody who's in limbo. Uh, and, you know, this just goes to show you the impact he's had on Western thought and indeed Islamic thought generally, right? So it's important to start with Aristotle just because that influence is so palatable. Uh, but the other reason why I started to start with him is because a lot of people on the political right have this real nostalgia for a vision of the world that I argue Aristotle articulated really well. Um, and, you know, throughout his career. Uh, and this is a vision of the world that's very much hierarchical, right? Uh, where, at least in a certain reading of Aristotle, uh, I don't want to stress there's left-wing readings of Aristotle also that I'm sympathetic to, like, you know, Marx and Narcissus, Martha knows bombs. But on the right-wing view of Aristotle, uh, he develops this view of nature as hierarchical. Uh, there are higher and order, lower orders of being. There are higher and lower orders of animals and various forms of life. Uh, and there are higher and lower orders of people. Right. Uh, and Aristotle makes this pretty clear in the politics, right, where he says some people, mostly you know, Athenian aristocrats, possess a lot of what he calls deliberative reason, basically a capacity for, you know, highfalutin thought. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are the people who should be in charge of, you know, most Greek polices uh, because, you know, they possess the capacity to actually rule effectively. Uh, and then there are people, he says, that have some degree of deliberative reason, mostly women. Right. Uh, and they should have a certain amount of say uh, in how things go, but not too much, right? Because they don't have the same capacity for deliberative reason that a well-educated Athenian gentleman would. Uh, and then at the very bottom, he says, look, they're also just natural slaves, right? Uh, these are the kinds of people who, you know, don't read, can't think about, you know, things abstractly, uh, have no idea what's going on outside of, you know, their own narrow purview. Uh, and their job, of course, is to clean the toilets and, you know, take out the trash in society because every society needs those people. Uh, and they shouldn't have any kind of significant political uh, or private rights, right? They should more or less just follow the orders of the people who do possess deliberative reason because they know better uh, how their lives should be lived uh, and what kind of projects politically they should commit themselves to. Uh, and this maps on to a social vision uh, that the philosopher called, Charles Taylor calls uh, hierarchical complementarity. Uh, this idea basically that society is a pyramid, right? There are people at the top and then there are people in the middle and then there's a lot more people at the bottom. Uh, and every rung of that pyramid needs the other rungs, right? It's not like you can take the bottom rung away uh, and the structure will stand. Uh, but people at the top possess clearly more dignity, more authority, more wealth, more power than those at the bottom, right? Uh, and from a certain kind of reading of Aristotle, again, uh, this is taken to just be natural, uh, and not just natural, but necessary, right? Uh, society can't function without people at the bottom, you know, cleaning the toilets and people at the top giving the orders and spending the money, right? Uh, and this view of how society should be organized was actually the one that was predominant for a very long period of time, right? Uh, you know, if you're Listeners, let's read what like watch Game of Thrones or any of those kind of medieval TV shows, right? Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, the feudal system models this really nicely, right? Where you have you know peasants and serfs at the bottom, you know, knights, lords, and you know a few merchants, uh, you know, in the middle, uh, and then you have the king and sometimes you know religious authority at the top. Uh, and it's really only with the advent of liberalism uh, or liberal thought, uh, inspired by a lot of different things like Stoicism and certain forms of Christianity uh, in the 17th century, that you see a different view of society emerge. Uh, one that, you know, Thomas Jefferson understood pretty well uh, when he said, no, 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 actually all people are created equal uh, or all people are born equal. So it's from the standpoint of equality uh, or human equality that we need to start to think about politics rather than the old way of thinking about it, which was to insist that, no, actually all people are unequal at the start of their life and they become more unequal over time. Okay, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny just thinking... Uh... You know, I don't I don't often just uh, sit down and pick up a, a book of Aristotle and just read it 
at this point in my life, but I was obviously made, you know, everyone pretty much, you know, that gets a standard Amer uh, American public school education gets, you know, read some Aristotle, but I guess they really clean it up. They really like uh, clean up some of that whole, uh, there are natural slaves uh, rhetoric that <laughs> he apparently was saying, because uh, you get more of just, you know, the whole, yeah, uh, he invented reason and logic or, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to. You know, he had a big influence uh, even on American slavery, right? You know, people in the American South used to cite Aristotle all the time because, you know, he was a very prestigious figure. And they'd say, look, he says there are natural slaves. So what are people getting so much in the arms about uh, when it comes to our slave system? It's natural. You know, Aristotle says so. Man, that into my head just now popped like a an, an antebellum uh, gentleman, you know, at a cocktail party going, uh, Aristotle, you know, just <laughs> uh, I, I do believe I would quote Aristotle in this uh, argument we're having here, so <laughs> and then just uh, and then slap him with a glove and do a duel. The only thing, I, you know, the only thing I think we should bring back is duels. Duels, yeah, those were those were not necessarily a bad idea. Um, moving forward to some more, um, just some historical people that you cite. Uh, this is so obviously I knew who, who Aristotle was. Um, although I was unfamiliar with his uh, standpoint on slavery. You also cite other historical figures that I have to admit I'm unfamiliar with, most of them. Uh, who was Alexander Dugan? I feel like I, I know the, the name sounds familiar. Why is he important? Uh, well, it's who is Alexander Dugan because he's still very much alive and tweeting and, uh, you know, going oh, on. Oh, he's a, he's a modern figure. Okay, I thought he might have Oh, been yeah. Uh, so Alexander Dugan uh, is sometimes called Putin's brain. Uh, you know, he's the one of the major philosophical figures uh, on the Russian right. Uh, now, whether or not he actually influences what Putin does or Russian foreign policy, uh, there's a lot of debate about that, right? Some people say that actually Putin does take his ideological cues, at least from Dugan and his circle. Uh, other people say, you know, Dugan's kind of a useful idiot for Putin, right? Uh, but long story short, you know, uh, Alexander Dugan uh, came of age during the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, he was really attracted to various kinds of ultra-right movements, you know, like Russian fascism, uh, while the Soviet Union was in power. Uh, but he says that, you know, actually after the Soviet Union fell, even though he was very opposed to communism, needless to say, uh, he nonetheless missed it because he missed the time period when Russia, uh, you know, was a great power on par, at least, you know, right behind the United States, able to exercise its might around the globe because uh, he felt, you know, that the country had been humiliated. Right. Uh, you know, it had been broken apart uh, It had lost the Cold War. Uh, you know, the country descended into chaos, you know, uh, as, you know, capitalism or shock capitalism was really rapidly introduced. Uh, and a lot of people lost their jobs and their livelihoods and their savings, you know, you name it. Uh, and he started to try to develop a new kind of ideology uh, that he felt would help restore Russia to the greatness uh, to which it was entitled. Uh, and this was first articulated uh, in his big book, Foundations of Geopolitics. Uh, where he talks about how there are countries of the sea and countries of the land. Uh, and America, along with Britain, are countries of the sea. Uh, and they've been dominant for a long period of time. Uh, and they tend to be attracted to things like liberal values, universalism, cosmopolitanism. Because, uh, you know, seafaring countries, they interact with a lot of people. Uh, they tend to have this mercantile attitude towards them because they're very focused on trade. Uh, and you know how trade is, right? You know, you're not going to get very far if you look down on somebody you're trying to make a bargain with, you know, the idea is that you're supposed to benefit, I'm supposed to benefit, and we need to treat each other with a certain degree of mutual respect, uh, even if, you know, it's kind of instrumentalized. 
Uh, by contrast, you know, countries of the land, according to Dugan at least, tend to be more nationalistic, more spiritual, uh, more focused on things like, you know, uh, the homogeneity of the people. Uh, and he argues that, you know, um, in order to restore Russia uh, in this kind of fascist way, uh, what we need to do or what Russians need to do is form alliances with a lot of very ultra right forces around the globe, right? Uh, militant anti, I'm sorry, militant Islamists, uh, white nationalists, a whole degree uh, way of like uh, neo-Nazi and fascistic movements in Europe in particular, uh, and use them to kind of undermine American power uh, to create a space uh, for a new kind of Eurasian empire that's going to form uh, that'll become the new global hegemon. So that's his foundations of geopolitics, right? Uh, yeah. Later, later on, um, like contemporaneously, he's published a few different books on political theory. Most notably, a book called The Fourth Political Theory uh, and a couple of books on a philosopher called Heidegger, uh, where, again, he argues for this need for national renewal on Russia's part, you know, warring against decadent liberal egalitarianism uh, and, you know, putting a stop uh, to what he sees as the creep of liberalism uh, eastwards into Russian territory. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why, for instance, he's been very supportive of the Ukrainian invasion uh, that took place, you know, not too long ago, you know, uh, because he feels that. Ukraine is liberalizing at the behest of the West uh, and, you know, the United States in particular, uh, and Russia needs to put a stop by that, uh, to that by restoring its empire, uh, by retaking parts of the Ukraine. Yeah, and that I don't, I don't want to dive too deep into this. Uh, obviously, I was going to assume that this guy was uh, absolutely pro uh, the annexation of uh, Ukraine oh, yeah. back into the uh, back into Russia, or maybe, and maybe in his truly ideal scenario uh, a, a new soviet union uh but i do get i get confused because uh I, some some people have made the argument that nato has put uh russia on the defensive i don't know i'm not a uh you know i'm not like a geopolitical you know mastermind as to who you know like who's yeah. who is always you know i think there might be aggressors on more than one side of this but uh, yeah, okay. So Alexander Dugan uh, turns out to be a modern uh, right-wing thinker in Russia. Did not know that. Now I do. Modern fascist, I should say, right? I mean, um, we can get into the distinction between fascism uh, and conservatism, right? But, uh, you know, in terms of his aspiration to establish a new kind of Russian empire, this feeling that liberal and left-wing forces have undermined, you know, Russia's strength and they need to be eliminated. Uh, and, you know, uh, this idea that, decadent liberal ideas about personal freedom uh undermine you know the solidarity of the nation um that's all you know pretty fascistic uh, not to mention you know just the sense that you know war uh will help restore you know the nation to its preeminence in the world right uh, i mean you can go look at his fucking twitter if you want uh, a lot of it is just stuff like kill 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 you know bomb the shit out of them you know just yeah. demolish you know the ukrainians right uh, it's really violent and very fucking pathological stuff okay well uh can't necessarily say that I will go check out Dugan, but uh, now I know who the fuck he is, and I think I, I hope to never meet him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, he's not a nice guy. Let's just put it this way: if I fucking saw him at a bar, we would not get beers together. No, we sh no. He would get uh, what's that thing they call in Ireland uh, when the, it's, it's a it's a problem over there. It's where they it's they it's I think it's just called getting pinted. It's where they <laughs> sure. take a pint glass. It's a it's like a very common like bar fight thing that happens in Ireland where someone just takes a pint glass and just smashes it on someone's <laughs> head. I think it's like it's so fucking common that it's like, you know, that has a it has a term, you know. Uh, I I don't know, but yeah, he he would fucking deserve <laughs> that if anybody would. Let me just tell it that way. 
All right, Alexander Dugan, if you're listening, you better watch the fuck out if you're ever in an Irish pub with me, homeboy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, as you were saying, so yeah, uh, Mr. Dugan is nostalgic for the uh, Soviet Union, although he hates communism. He's nostalgic for, we could say for him, he's nostalgic for the power. Uh, the, the, oh, the yeah, definitely. Community. But uh, let's just say, I, I think nostalgia is a an enormous aspect, is an enormous, uh, you know, driving force behind all all these movements whatever whatever country they may be living in and and you mentioned that that far-right extremism is nostalgic at its core uh other than like you know dugan he's nostalgic for fucking the soviet union what you know what what are far-right extremists like what are they nostalgic for in general well, one of the things that differentiates the far right from, say, mainstream conservatism uh, is mainstream conservatives tend to want to do just what their name says. They want to conserve, right? They're like, look, society as it stands right now uh, isn't perfect and probably always will be imperfect, uh, but it functions reasonably well. Uh, and the thing that conservatives want to guard against uh, are radical efforts to reform or transform it, right? Uh, once you get on to the far right, well, you start to see people say as, no, actually, society as it stands right now is really fucking bad, right? Uh, it's decadent. It's decayed. Uh, we've fallen away from some state of grace that existed before. And what we need are actually radical moves uh, in order to bring society to the ideal that it should aspire to, right? Uh, now, the far right is a very fucking weird place with a lot of bizarre people, right? Uh, I mean, just go watch, you know, Vice News or something if you want. Uh, or just fucking look at a newspaper now, right? Yeah. Uh, with all the QAnon <laughs> shit, right? And, you know, you can get a flavor for that, right? Uh, but fascism uh, as a particular form of far-right politics, and there are more far-right politics than just fascism, uh, has this very particular kind of nostalgia that, oddly enough, is very future-minded, right? Uh, so I agree with the great historian Roger Griffin, uh, where he characterizes fascism as what he calls a kind of palingenetic ultranationalism, right? Now, that's a complicated you know, term, but what it basically just refers to is this idea that, look, uh, everyone is part of what he calls the ultranation, right? Uh, the ultranation doesn't necessarily have to be confined to the boundaries of the nation state. Uh, it's a people, right, uh, that once had a glorious past, right? Uh, or, you know, ruled a glorious realm. Uh, you know, think about, you know, fascist Italy, you know, with its appeals to the Roman Empire, right? We once dominated the Mediterranean. Uh, or Germany, right? This idea that, you know, we once dominated Europe. Uh, but then the fascist comes in and says, but we've lost our way, right? The nation has declined and it's been allowed to decline because of the presence of these very decadent, uh, destructive forces, uh, which are almost always on the left, right? Uh, liberalism has led people to think that, you know, everybody should just be allowed to do whatever it is that they want without committing themselves to these grand international projects. Uh, socialism and communism are even worse in a lot of ways because they focus a lot on, you know, the lowest orders in society and they're universalistic at this kind of, cheesy belief that, you know, everyone should be treated well, regardless of, you know, whether I'm part of this nation or that nation. Uh, and these forces needs to be expunged, right? Uh, and they can only be expunged if we commit ourselves to the fascist movement uh, and to obedience to a leader type figure, right? Almost always a man. Uh, although increasingly there are some women uh, or female fascists who seem to be assuming uh, a leadership role as well, which is pretty worrying. Uh, and, you know, the leader says that, you know, you join me and I'll expunge uh, these decadent leftist forces um, through any means necessary, and I'll restore the ultranation uh, to its former glory, right? We'll build a new Roman Empire, or we'll gain Lebensraum for the German Reich, uh, or, you know, and Spain with the Falangist movement, right? You know, we'll create a new North African Empire, uh, and, you know, we'll purge the Republicans, uh, whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, and, you know, this almost always involves violence, 
concentration camps, uh, this feeling that, you know, there are enemies everywhere and they all need to be dealt with through a suppression of individual liberties. Uh, but it can be very appealing uh, for at least some people uh, because it combines this feeling of a populist desire to belong, right? Feeling like I am part of a great people. I'm not just alone, right? Yeah. Uh, with a very elitist sense that, well, I want to belong and I want to be part of a people, but we're a better sort of people than everyone else, right? We're not just part of the human race. Uh, you know, we are part of this great nation, right? Uh, or, you know, a great imperial group. Uh, and we've been denied uh, our entitlement to rule, basically, uh, over huge swaths of the human race. Uh, and, you know, there but for the presence of these liberal and leftist forces, uh, you know, we would be kings of the world. Uh, and that can be really appealing for a lot of people and explains why fascism in a lot of different permutations uh, always seems to creep back up, no matter how many disasters it produces. And that's... And they they uh, they like to have their cake and eat it too uh, with the whole, you know, because they love to they love to be victims. They love to uh, right. talk about their victimhood constantly. How they're they're victims of society. They're victims of the deep state. They're victims of the liberals. They're victims of people that are transgender. You fucking just goddamn goes on the list. The list of people who have wronged them and and I mean even fucking Disney mermaids at this yeah. point, right? I mean yeah, like uh, you fucking put a black mermaid in a Disney movie, then goddamn, isn't that just you know undermining them in some I, way? Right? I have never felt so victimized in my life as when they made a new Little Mermaid movie. But uh, also you know moving past the yeah, but they so they're so they're constantly victims and yet. Uh, simultaneously, they are the most, uh, they're the strongest, smartest. Uh, they always like, they've always got video, the, the you know, the, the, the politicians, they always got videos where they're firing off a fucking machine gun and being like, yeah. oh, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, you know, how many fucking liberals I could kill in five minutes, you know, so, yeah. so they're, so they're also, they're, they're somehow superhuman and victims. So yeah, they really love to play that game. I have a, a a little analogy. I don't know if that maybe this will help because uh, you know, maybe I I lump a lot of these people in together, and I think it's probably it's wise and good that you uh, kind of steered me towards differentiating between what we might call just a kind of a normal conservative person and a far right extremist or fascist. Let's say for me, for instance, uh, I I consider myself an environmentalist and a conservationist, and like I have, uh, let's say there's there's uh, a national park that I love and I want to conserve it. I don't want it to change there. That, that would be me being a, a regular conservative, you know, it, and it's even almost the same word. Uh, but if I were more of a, you know, let's say an ecological fascist about it, I would say that all surrounding cities, suburbs, and any kind of human habitation that exists anywhere near this state park should be bulldozed uh, or bombed and, replaced you know and the forest should be moved into those areas as well does, does that fit the uh is that a kind of a way to put it I don't... <laughs> oh yeah no that absolutely works right and i mean look uh everyone can have certain kinds of conservative inclinations at points right uh you know we sit there and we want to conserve the environment like you said uh, and it's worth noting that you know uh in the 1960s and the 1970s um many conservative movements around the globe weren't as radically anti-environmentalist as they are right now right uh, some of them made exactly the argument you did right like look uh you know we need to conserve nature you know for future generations uh, and then you know big oil companies got involved and you know uh, they co-opted a lot of these um parties and movements and stuff and they became radically anti-environmentalist uh, but i think you know the one thing i would add to your analogy uh, would be a fascist would say 
uh, it's the decadent immigrant populations living in those towns uh, that are undermining, uh, you know, our nation uh, and have led to the destruction of our environment. Uh, and they're always going to do that because these people are wasteful uh, and you know, virus-like. Uh, and that's why we need to bomb them, right? Because again, uh, this pro projection of otherness uh, onto much of humanity, uh, the suggestion or the implication that they don't belong and they can never be part of the nation or the people because they have some recognizable sign of inferiority uh, that is both threatening uh, and demeaning, right, is so essential uh, to the fascist mindset. Uh, and this also plays into what you were just talking about, about this weird habit of simultaneously being a member of an elite uh, while also presenting as a victim. Uh, a lot of people have pointed out that this is a kind of contradictory set of impulses, and in a lot of ways it can be, right? Uh, but it's also very powerful and very emotionally cathartic to feel that way at the same time. Uh, because a lot of these people think like, look, uh, deep down, you know, I am an elite, right? Uh, I am an aristocrat. I do belong to the Aryan race of Superman, or I'm one of, you know, Nietzsche's uh, superior people, uh, yeah. or, you know, Ubermensch. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the reason why people don't recognize that is because we live in a society that's so fallen and all these left-wing people are persecuting me, undermining me, taking away, you know, the privileges and status that I would enjoy uh, if I were in a society that wasn't torn down in this way. Uh, so this feeds into those feelings of elitism and persecution. Uh, and it's a very toxic mix that nonetheless can be really appealing to a lot of people. Uh, yeah. Somebody wants to feel just like a victim. Uh, it's a lot more seductive to think, uh, really, I am a king, uh, but I haven't come into my kingdom yet. But boy, I will one day. Uh, yeah. And then I'm going to take revenge on everybody who's wronged me. Yeah. I'm a I'm an ubermensch, but nobody will let me be an ubermensch. Uh, I would like to add just one small caveat. It is off topic, but it feel like I just want to go ahead and put it in there. Going back to my analogy about uh, environmentalism, uh, I do want to say that uh, that wasn't just hypothetical. I do, I do absolutely believe that a lot of developed areas should be rewilded and uh, you know used to create forest corridors. Uh, that's a topic for another day. Just want to say that uh, I don't, I didn't want that to come across as though I thought that was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, yeah, definitely. I mean, look, everyone should be an environmentalist at this point, right? Uh, I mean, yeah, we owe yeah. it to future generations, uh, not to mention to ourselves, uh, to be able to have fucking clean drinking water, if nothing else. You know, I live in Michigan right now, so there are people in the United States uh, where that's not even a guaranteed thing because there's so much pollution put into the water, right? We shouldn't be having to that uh, at this point. And especially, you know, hey, if you are a uh, some kind of like racial purist, uh, fucking I hate immigrants type person, guess what? Uh, climate refugees are going to be a thing and you might be one of them. So you might end up uh, having to go someplace where not everyone is a snow white weirdo and uh, you're not going to fit in there and they're not going to like you. So maybe get, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes for once. Uh, yeah, okay. This is kind of, this is, we've already discussed Alexander Dugan. It's kind of one of the first intellectuals on the right. Uh, I, quotation marks. I don't know how much of an intellectual this fucking guy is, but Trump is clearly the figurehead of the right-wing movement in America. He's the most oh, yeah. fam most famous guy you're going to, you know, think of when you think of this shit. Probably uh, the most famous guy in the world right now, man. I mean, honestly, like, yeah. however fucking tired a lot of us might be of hearing about him, if you fucking put his face in front of anybody on the planet, they'd probably know who he is, right? He could he could potentially be more famous than Taylor Swift at this point. But, but oh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question, yeah. <laughs> uh, did you see, uh, I'm not a giant, I'm not a Taylor Swift fan, but I, I'm a fan of... Uh, people accomplishing awesome things and i don't know if if you saw that thing she created a 
uh, she, she did a concert in Los Angeles at the former Staples Center, and it was measured on the Richter scale because the audience went so fucking wild. Go, go her, man. You know what? I'm, yeah, I'm a, I, I I'm a fan that of that kind of tour <laughs> is apparently going to make more money than entire country's GDPs. So she's basically like fucking like <laughs> there's she's a significant part of the U.S. economy at this point. Just Taylor Swift and, you know, fucking get on her. Right. <laughs> Forget yeah. that point. Ba uh, back when she was not back when she was she had only had like her first hit song. Uh, I'm proud to say that I served her some chicken. At a Did restaurant you? that I worked at. Yeah, I worked at. She was very, very polite to me at the time. Uh, I hope she's still cool. Anyway, awesome. <laughs> uh, moving away from Trump, you know, because obviously people don't consider Trump an intellectual. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious, like, who are who are the modern right wing intellectuals? Like, who who are filling who fills these roles, and what are their objectives? Uh, sure, that's a great question. Uh, so I have a piece that came out in the magazine uh, in these times uh, a few days ago, right? Uh, where I talk about the new three-legged stool that's emerging on the right. Uh, so for your listeners who might not be familiar, um, in conservative circles in the United States between the 1950s and now, uh, people use this metaphor of a three-legged school to describe what made up the American right or the coalition that made up the American right. Uh, and the three legs of the American right uh, or the three legs of the stool were usually taken to be social conservative, uh, mostly even white evangelicals, uh, usually who are opposed to things like civil rights movements. Uh, so there were social conservative evangelicals, uh, mostly white, uh, who are opposed to things like the extension of civil rights, feminism, uh, the LGBTQ movement. Uh, basically, you know, were moral crusaders uh, against movements demanding certain kinds of social equality. Then the second leg of the stool were libertarians, uh, broadly speaking, right-wing libertarians, uh, who felt that, you know, the New Deal and various kind of welfare measures uh, were either economically inefficient uh, or they gave too much to the undeserving uh, or both, right? Uh, and then the third leg of the stool through a lot of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and up to the 80s uh, were anti-communists, uh, who later mutated into neoconservatives, right? Uh, these people who felt, you know, we need to take a harder line uh, on things like terrorism, intervene in these countries, etc. Uh, and this coalition was really viable uh, in the United States for a long period of time. That was kind of, uh, was was kind of like the, the that was kind of like the Rumsfeld, uh, Cheney era. Is that kind of what you mean? Like Donald, yeah, Donald Rumsfeld. Or or even going back before, right, to Ronald Reagan, right, you know, yeah. uh, you know, 40 years ago or so, right, you know, that was a Reagan coalition, right, you know, he had white evangelicals in the South, uh, you know, that he would dog whistle to on moral and racial issues, uh, you know, and, you know, very pro-capitalist types, uh, and, you know, he's militantly anti-communist, right, and he kind of stamped the conservative movement for a long time. Uh, but starting with Donald Trump uh, getting elected, you really start to see this three-legged stool not so much break down as coagulate uh, into a new form, uh, because a lot of people on the right became deeply dissatisfied uh, with the way the country was going. Uh, and they started to blame the more liberal elements within the conservative movement uh, for letting things get as far as they had on issues like, say, LGBTQ rights uh, or trans rights, for that matter, especially now. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, or felt that, you know, um, the country had done too much uh, to allow immigrants into the country because that was good for the economy or at least it benefited certain kinds of firms. Uh, and this was destroying, you know, the nation's distinct culture, uh, which is usually, again, dog whistled uh, in various kinds of white supremacist ways, right? Uh, so I argue in this piece that a new three-legged stool is starting to emerge on the right, uh, consisting of new groups who are kind of the intellectual vanguard of conservatism uh, in America circa 2023. Uh, and I argue that the three new three-legged stool consists of 
national conservatives. Uh, and these are people who tend to think that the chief goal uh, of American policy should be entrenching uh, a kind of solidaristic national culture uh, focused on religion, ethnicity, uh, whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, and these people tend to be pretty adamantly anti-immigrant. Uh, they're also pretty adamantly uh, pro-Christianity. They think that, you know, the state should intervene uh, to try to promote Christian values, uh, even if that comes at the expense of certain other groups, right? Uh, and they have a whole host of other policy recommendations along with that. The second leg of the stool are what I call uh, post-liberals or what are called post-liberals, right? Uh, these are people uh, like um, Patrick Deneen or Adrian Vermeule uh, or, or Reno. Uh, and these intellectual figures tend to argue that we should have a national culture, yes, and it should be focused on Christianity, uh, but you know, we should maybe intervene more in the economy uh, as well uh, to try to promote things like family formation, uh, to try to eliminate things uh, like uh, the decay of the nuclear family, which is, you know, been wrought because of various kind of feminist adventures, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the third leg of the stool uh, are what I call the Nietzschean, right? Uh, these are people like uh, Bronze Age Pervert, who some of your listeners might know, uh, or Richard Hanania, uh, you know, who some of you probably heard of, um, sometimes Chris Rufo, you know, echoes in this direction. Uh, and these are people who tend to take a much more libertarian approach to the economy, uh, but frame it almost in social Darwinian terms, right? Where they'll say things like, look, you know, uh, the right economy would be one that facilitates uh, the more intelligent members of our society reaching the top. Uh, and anything that kind of um, doesn't abet that is a bad thing, right? Uh, and along with this is usually a not very subtle amount of racism, right? So, you know, yeah. people probably are familiar with Ananya. He was, you know, a white supremacist for a long time. He claims that he's forsworn that now, uh, except he's still fixated on, you know, African-American IQ stores and why it is that they wind up, you know, conducting all this prime, right? Uh, but, you know, it's this really kind of um, late 19th century, early 20th century model of how American society is supposed to be, uh, where, you know, the stronger, more intellectual types are supposed to rise to the top uh, and other people are supposed to be at the bottom, right? Uh, now there's more to say about all new three legs of the stool, uh, but I argue that it's these three groups that form the kind of intellectual, cultural, uh, and artistic vanguard uh, of American conservative realism right now, and they're really reshaping it in their own image. It's, uh, just kind of go back, it's it's just wild that there are people right now, like in 2023, uh, actually this episode will come out in 2024, so nice. fuck, uh, 2024, people that are like basing their political beliefs on Nietzsche, like still... <laughs> like, yeah. and then and even the original you know even when the nazis were doing that that was uh, a perversion of even what he had written then so i mean who knows what what kind of like just absolutely mishmashed kind of like like uh interpretation of that guy's philosophy they're working with at this point um yeah i mean this has always been an american kind of thing though uh, i mean you probably know ayn rand right uh you know i've never read an and Ayn Rand book, uh, they're very thick, and I've been told that I wouldn't like what's in them. So yeah, fuck that, you know. Well, you wouldn't, right? No, no, I wouldn't recommend it, right? Because yeah, it's a uh, it's a lot of time for very little of value, right? But uh, she was very influenced by Nietzsche, for example, right? Uh, but what she kind of did in many ways was Americanize Nietzsche, right? So uh, Nietzsche was pretty anti-capitalist in a lot of ways, right? Because he felt that you know these decadent capitalist figures who focused on producing commodities uh, for, you know, the lower orders. Uh, that was too trite and not aristocratic enough. Uh, but Ryan Rand's, you know, view was, look, you know, the market is kind of a sorting mechanism uh, if it's left to its own devices, right? Where the more extraordinary people, right? Uh, the developers, the innovators, 
the people who come up with all the new ideas, uh, they will rise in a market economy. Uh, and other people will get to benefit from their works, uh, but they certainly have no entitlement uh, to try to, say, tax the wealth that the you know, rich acquire uh, through their own labors and through their own efforts, right? So she kind of Americanized uh, a lot of these Nietzschean ideas about the need for society having a Superman uh, by translating it into a capitalist idiom. And that's been really popular uh, for a lot of people on the American right right now. Uh, people like Peter Thiel, right, for example, yeah. uh, or even see Elon Musk echoing a lot of this kind of language. You know, the idea that, you know, what we need is a ultra businessman uh, who's, you know, polymath, you know, who's going to save us all, apparently, uh, but shouldn't be restrained by the state or unions uh, and definitely doesn't like, you know, DEI programs or anything that puts pressure on their privilege. You know, actually, you, know you, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head there for me for uh, why I have not read Ayn Rand. You know, first of all, I don't I don't debate these people. It's not uh, I don't find joy in doing such things. Uh, but what I have seen time and time again are the people that I just absolutely consider to be some of the dumbest fucking assholes on the planet that love to quote Ayn Rand or talk about how she influenced them so much and blah, blah, blah. And that's always some fucking shithead. And so, and also uh, another thing too, like knowing about her whole deal and knowing that she ended up, you know, um, living off the dole for the rest of her yeah, life, yeah. To, you know, to, taking fucking advantage of social security and basically what, you know, socialism she used that to you know so uh she also so borrowed a lot of money from her family and never paid it back right uh yeah. which they were not happy about because her family wasn't exactly rich when they're in the u.s right so yeah yeah uh, she was very much one of those uh do as i say not as i do types let's put it that way <laughs> yes uh okay so we're gonna take a little kind of a kind of a turn here uh into something uh where i actually have to ask you how to pronounce something before i say it so uh Ball, B A A L. Is that pronounced ball? B A L L. B A A L. When you oh, say, yes, ball. Yeah. When you say, okay, I'm sorry. I, I just I didn't want to go like ball and then find out I was being a dumbass. Uh, but um, sorry. Back to uh, uh, your writings. What do you mean when you say between God and ball? And and what and also what is ball? Who is ball? Oh, the that's just a cheeky kind of uh, title I came up with, right? So uh, God, uh, sorry, Baal is a, um, a god, right? Uh, that is a false god from a kind of Christian perspective, right? Uh, but he's often, you know, referenced in the literature as a kind of tempting figure that leads people away from the holy path towards, you know, decadence and materialism uh, and, you know, licentious sex, that kind of thing, right? So uh, the reason I use that as a uh, section title uh, is because a lot of conservatives, particularly starting in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, argued that, you know, our society was moving uh, in an ever more liberal, ever more egalitarian direction. Uh, and this meant that, you know, respect for traditional patriarchal uh, and Christian values was decaying. Uh, and our society was moving ever closer towards, you know, a state of sinful decline. Uh, and, you know, argued that what we need is a restoration uh, of these traditional values in order to bring the country or bring the world uh, back to where it should be. Uh, often framed in these like very apocalyptic terms. Okay. So is Baal like the devil? Is that like from, is it from like the Bible or what's it, where, where did it come from? Yeah, fairly synonymous, right? Uh, I mean, look, you know, um, it's not quite the devil in the sense of being a great antagonist uh, to God that is actively trying to undermine him. Uh, he's more of a, a figure that of temptation uh, where, you know, you can be tempted to have 
licentious sex uh, or engage in you know, hedonistic gratification uh, or sit there and think that, you know, you don't have any kind of responsibilities uh, to the church uh, that are predicated on Christian morality. Uh, he was a tempter figure of this sort. Oh, or dude. used uh, as yeah. a kind of symbolism uh, of the temptations to which we could fall in the event that we deviate from a Christian outlook. Ball sounds awesome, dude. All right, so probably uh, fun to hang out with, yeah. I, yeah, dude. You know what I would not do? I would not pint him in a uh, an Irish pub. Yeah, I would say, <laughs> I'd say let's let's go have some licentious sex and have no responsibilities. And uh, <laughs> and who's that guy I'm gonna pint? Uh, Alexander Dugan. Let's pint Alexander Dugan. No, no consequences, man. Oh no, you're right. I mean, Val would definitely be a lot funner. To, uh, he'd be a much more fun person to get a drink and <laughs> smoke a dude with than uh, any of the people I've talked about in the book. That's for sure. Maybe not Michael Oakshot. Michael Oakshot would be fun to drink with, but everyone else. So this next question might be a little bit overly simplistic, but I am just like we had said that the right is unified by their hostility towards equality. Uh, is this what always leads right wing cultures toward war and genocide? Is that a cause and effect? Is there something deeper uh, at play? Like, is this something like inherent in this uh, type of like in in fascism? Does fascism does it rely on war and genocide? Does it have to happen? No, it doesn't have to happen, right? And look, a lot of the people that I talk about in the book uh, were relatively pacifistic, right? Uh, but they're pacifistic as long as things are going their way, right? Uh, so you know, for instance, you know, uh, during the Reagan era, right? Uh, many conservatives like to present themselves as the faction of moderation, right? Uh, where, you know, the American left had pushed for radical reforms and revolution uh, and then endorsed civil rights movements that, you know, led to chaos in the streets. Uh, they were for things like law and order, staying the course, uh, not doing anything that's too risky. Uh, and this view of conservatism or the right was popular enough uh, that many people just took it for granted uh, that that's the way they look at things, right? Uh, but what I point out in the book is that uh, this by no means exhausts what the right is about because very often, right, conservatives or right-wingers or certainly the radical right uh, can come to the conclusion that actually we can't just stay the course, right? That things have gotten so bad and movements for equality have gotten so strong that actually what we need is radical uh, intervention. Uh, in order to bring things to the way that they should be or reestablish the hierarchy they think uh, is appropriate, right? Uh, and, you know, you don't need to take my word for it. Uh, just go read Glenn Almer's piece, uh, Conservatism is Not Enough, from 2021, right? Uh, yeah. Where he says, look, uh, we've had this kind of polite Reaganite attitude in the Republican Party for a really long time uh, where we think that, you know, what we're trying to do is conserve American society uh, you know, and stay the course. Uh, well, American society isn't worth saving or conserving any longer, right? Uh, you know, the vulgar swinish masses uh, have gained control uh, and, you know, they're pushing for more respect for LGBTQ people. Uh, they're pushing now, you know, for this idea that we should expect respect trans individuals. Uh, you know, the welfare state is starting to creep up again under Joe Biden. Uh, so what's worth conserving, right? Uh, conservatism is no longer enough. What we need now is a kind of radical rightism uh, that's going to remake the country the way that it should be, or as they sometimes call it, you know, a new founding or a refounding of the country uh, on right-wing principles. And you see these kinds of right-wing outlooks emerge all around the world, right? Uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher was very similar in the 1980s uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, where, you know, she said, we're going to retransform the country. Uh, and we're not even going to change the soul uh, of Britain. Because uh, like, economics isn't the end of what we're doing. It's just the means uh, to engage in soul craft. Uh, because yeah. Thatcher thought that the country was really going in the wrong direction because, you know, Labor Party and movements had been 
quite powerful uh, compared to the rest of British history for about 30 or 40 years at that point. Uh, and she was going to undo all that, right? Uh, so you know, there are more examples that I can give you, but this idea that conservatism is about moderation or restraint uh, is just bogus, right? Uh, yeah. They're all for moderation and restraint as long as they're getting what they want, right? Or they think that they're getting what they want. Uh, but the minute, you know, they think that, you know, there's too much equality uh, that's appearing in society, uh, boy, oh boy, can they be the first people uh, to say, you know, let's march on the Capitol, uh, burn down the Senate and, you know, try to replace, uh, you know, a current ruling elite with one that's more to our taste. Yeah, these motherfuckers are delusional too. Because it, uh, it makes me think of, uh, you know, you uh, suggested maybe reading something a little more complex, but also you could just read something as uh, as stupid and simple as a Marjorie Taylor Green yeah, yeah. tweet where she's like, "Well, what we got to do a national divorce," and you know what she means by that is she wants to start a civil war, which like I don't even know how she thinks she's going to come out on top of a civil war or what a civil war would even yeah. look like. She grew up in a fucking super rich family also. <laughs> like this whole kind of hick persona she comes up with. I'm like, look, there's two things that we can say about this, right? Uh, either one, all of, it's an act, all of it's an act, in which case you're a fucking liar. Uh, or you really are just this fucking dumb. So even though your parents poured millions of dollars into trying to make you smart, you still wound up dumb as shit, right? Uh, and boy, oh boy, if people pour millions of dollars into your fucking education and you still come out <laughs> dumb as shit, uh, you got to be fucking thick as a brick, you know, just baffling to me that she's got the kind of reputation she does it's amazing let me see how many people there are like that that have this same background you know a lot of people don't know because kid rock uh has always uh portrayed himself as someone because you know he came out when eminem came out and eminem grew up in a trailer park and so kid rock was like oh well that would work for me i'm gonna i want to be a white rapper from a trailer park too but kid rock is from like a fucking palatial mansion when yeah. one of the wealthiest fucking like uh neighborhoods in all of michigan and he's like he he even like raps like i'm straight out the trailer park anyway it's uh it's nothing new i guess but oh, uh you know these people are very good at standing <laughs> uh as you know members of you know the working class the blue collar class uh where they think they're going to gain some kind of advantage from it right uh, i mean fuck even trump does that sometimes right i mean trump used to say you know unlike everybody else who was part of the lucky sperm club, you know. Uh, I started off with just a little $2 million loan from my dad. And I'm always like, a little $2 million loan? Just a little $2 million, you know, to get you fucking started, right? And even that was a lie, right? He got fucking hundreds of millions of dollars from yeah. dad, you know, all through his life. It's just fucking ridiculous. Man. All right, cheer me up. Uh, <laughs> is there any hope that the right-wing movement might destroy itself? I've heard rumblings. I've heard rumors. I've heard whispers. Is there... Is there enough division in, you know, fissures in the America? Just like, let's just say just in America. I mean, uh, worldwide, I know that it's this is happening in countries all over, obviously all over the world. Um, but here in, in this nation, what do you think? Yeah, I think so, right? Uh, I mean, look, let's be clear, right? Um, the Republican Party has lost the popular vote in almost every presidential election since you and I were born, right? Uh, it's a very unpopular party. Uh, in a lot of the country, uh, in a majority of the country, actually, right? And it's only because of the more esoteric uh, and elitist aspects of the American constitutional electoral order uh, that it continues to be competitive, right? Uh, what I worry about the most is that something very similar is going to happen in 2024 as what happened in 2016. Uh, Trump will lose the popular vote uh, again, right, uh, by several million. Uh, despite that, he'll eke out a narrow marginal win uh, in a couple of states, 
uh, and then you know he's going to take power and he's going to make sure that he never loses it again, right? Uh, and you know that's a worrying scenario, and we'd be fucking pretty foolish uh, to not take that seriously. Uh, but you know there are also a lot of reasons for optimism. Like I said, you know, uh, one way or another, he's almost certainly going to lose uh, the popular vote because most people in the country uh, don't want him to be president, right? Uh, I mean, he likes to brag a lot about how, oh, I got the second most uh, ballots cast for me uh, out of any kind of presidential candidate in U.S. history. Well, that's only because more people cast a ballot against him than any other fucking candidate in U.S. history, right? That just goes to show you, you know, uh, the kind of attitude they take towards him. Uh, And also, you know, I think that, as unappealing uh, as, you know, the Biden administration has been in a lot of respects, the economy has done reasonably well. Uh, he's been pretty pro-union. Uh, and I think that when people take a second look uh, at, you know, both candidates, they'll probably think that as inadequate as Biden is in a lot of ways, and for a leftist like me, he is really inadequate. Uh, it's better than whatever the fuck the right has to offer right now, right? Uh, and I think that you've seen that, you know, the last couple of elections when he's run, right? Uh, and he lost in 2018, lost in 2020, he lost in 2022 when he wasn't even on the fucking ballot, but he endorsed a whole bunch of conspiracy theorists and quacks, and people just didn't want it, right? Uh, so Trump is a loser uh, politically in a lot of ways. Uh, he's threatening, and you know, you'd be foolish to underestimate him the way Hillary Clinton and the Dems did in 2016. Uh, but it's not like he's got some guaranteed path to victory. Uh, and I think that they can definitely be stopped if everybody commits themselves to doing that. Yeah. And you know, he's losing a lot of friends because he likes to fuck people over. Uh, <laughs> okay. The book is called The Political Right and Equality Turning Back the Tide on Egalitarian Modernity. We have barely scratched the surface of uh, this book. I mean, we just, I mean, we, we, I, I'm going to go ahead and just tell everybody, like, if, if this was an iceberg, we didn't even look at the tip. So uh, I guess, well, I guess what I just need to ask right now, man, is how can people find you, follow you, and where can they find this book and get to, like, more to the, like, you know, I mean, I'm, there's so many central ideas we didn't even have a chance to uh, discuss and maybe also if you would like to add in a couple more of the central ideas of the book uh, and kind of, you know, maybe, uh, you know what I'm saying, man. People can add me uh, on Twitter at Matt Paul Prof, uh, or, you know, you can email me Matt McManus 300 at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, I mean, look, I wrote this book uh, in also part because I think it's important, even for those of us who aren't on the right to understand the right, because it's a very powerful movement in a lot of ways right now. Uh, but like I was saying also, is by no means, you know, uh, some kind of invincible political force, the way that a lot of people on the right like to present themselves. Uh, in America, uh, it's become a minority faction, uh, has been for a very long time. Uh, and a lot of ways, liberalism uh, and pushes for equality uh, are as popular as they've ever been, certainly within my lifetime. Right. Uh, and the reason for this, I think, is because there is a lot that's good uh, about equality. Right. Uh, it's very hard to form friendships uh, if you treat people like shit. Uh, or treat people like they're your subordinates. It's very hard to form loving relationships if you treat people like they're your servants or something like that. So I think that, you know, a society where there's more equality, where people treat each other, you know, with respect, right, uh, and try to make sure that everyone has an opportunity for a good life is really appealing to a lot uh, of Americans, a lot of Canadians, a lot of British people. Uh, and, you know, I'm hoping that that's going to carry us through to victory uh, in 2024. Uh and, you know, if it doesn't, then, you know, there's always my book so you can pick it up and read about conservatism to figure out how to push back against another Trump administration. Hell yeah. Matt, uh, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I certainly hope that this is not the, not the last time you'll be here to discuss the many things you write about. I'm always fascinated in. 
And um, man, I, I was going to say Merry Christmas, but then I realized uh, this won't. This will be 2024 when this comes out. So Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, fuck. All right, uh, Matt, man, I will. Uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, you too, man. Take care.